Welcome everyone to the CEO.Digital show. My name is Craig McCartney and I'll be your host that's going to guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-suite executives, those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hello, good afternoon. Today's guest is Dr. Mohan Subramaniam. He is a professor of strategy and digital transformation at the IMD Business School in Lucerne, Switzerland. He's a thought leader and an expert on digital transformation of incumbent industrial firms and new sources of competitive advantage in the digital age. His latest book, The Future of Competitive Strategy, Unleashing the Power of Data and Digital Ecosystems, articulates how traditional firms, long accustomed to competing within similar industries, find new sources of value and growth from within emerging digital ecosystems. He regularly appears in the Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, and he is also on the editorial advisory board of MIT Sloan Management Review. He also often delivers keynotes at a variety of conferences and events. Welcome to the CEO.Digital show, Mohan. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Craig. It's my pleasure too to be here and uh, grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation. So the first thing that we do with our guests is just to find out a little about them. Of course, I gave an introduction, but it's great just to hear directly from you. You are a professor at the IMD Business School in Switzerland. It'll be great to understand what you're doing there, how you're helping your students and what your expertise are in the, the world of, say, digital transformation. Sure. So I come from a background of competitive strategy. So that's where, you know, I cut my teeth in the academic world. And uh, maybe about eight or nine years back, I clearly realized that, you know, the fundamental premises of competitive strategy were changing. There were new frameworks required to think about how firms compete in this new environment. So I have picked up, or at least I've been focusing a lot of my attention and academic insight and even practical applicability of frameworks in how firms should compete in the new digital world and how they should transform themselves for this new world. So my title, official title at IMD is Professor of Strategy and Digital Transformation. So that's what I do. 90% of our work at IMD involves custom programs, you know, with companies. So most of my work involves working with senior leaders in corporations and inculcating new ways of strategic thinking and making them more relevant and ready for this new world. So the corporate leaders, that they're coming to you to learn about digital transformation. That's true. And I know data is such a key part to digital transformation. And I know it's something that you're passionate about. So I just wanted to understand your thoughts on, on how important data is in the world of digital transformation and how can leaders utilize this to not only just support their customers, but make their business successful. 
That's a very good question. So at the outset, I must say that data is not new. Even before this whole buzz about digital transformation and all that, we always had data. In fact, for the longest time, we used to complain that we have too much of data and we don't know what to do with data. So what has changed? The way I look at it is this. And this involves you know, comparing some of the more traditional roots of competitive strategy with what is required. And data is a very key part of that change, right? So if I back up and talk about, you know, how have we thought of competitive strategy over the last, I would say, 40 odd years, the three core pillars. One is that all our revenues come from our products. And by the way, when I'm talking about these assumptions, I'm talking about what I call legacy firms or firms that have built their legacy before the internet era. My frustration has been that people talking about digital strategy somehow confound the whole thing with what the digital platforms are doing. Now, I'd make it very clear that for me, the focus is on you know, what I call legacy firms, firms who make bicycles, who make water pumps, who sell insurance policies, banks, whatever, right? I mean, but for these companies, 100% of their revenues comes from their products or services. That's the first almost intuitive pillar of competitive strategy that we have. That's the assumption and that's the reality. The second big pillar is about value chains, which is how we organize our entire set of operations, right from getting raw material all the way or input in the case of services, right to the way of products or services output. And that plays a big role in conventional competitive strategy because it allows you to position your products differently and kind of make your mark in your market. Third very important pillar is that the industry in which a firm competes is very important for its success. And by the way, the people familiar of Michael Porter, who basically revolutionized our thinking somewhere around 1979 or 80 was his book, he brought this out very elegantly with the five force framework. Essentially, the core argument was that industry structure or the way your industry characteristics are because of scale economies or barriers to entry or how powerful your buyers are and so on and so forth, they have a huge role to play in how successful you are. Okay. Now, those are the three key pillars. And so competitive strategy has been about what products, what markets, how do I differentiate myself through value chains, and how do I marshal the forces in the industry for competitive advantage, okay? Now, that's where we were. That's where we are with most legacy firms. Now, if you look around, and for a minute, if I refer to these digital platforms, think about the Facebooks of the world, or Googles of the world, or the Amazons of the world, it's very interesting that very little of their day or their revenues come from their products. Almost all their revenues come from data. They don't operate through value chains. They have their own platforms and things. And most importantly, they don't rely on industry structure necessarily to build competitive advantage. For them, something called digital ecosystems, which we'll talk about a little, they amplify the value of their data. So we all know that Uber's value comes because there are more drivers and more riders and the more their digital ecosystems, the more powerful their data. So here's where we are. Legacy firms, 100% of our revenues come from products. These digital platforms, 100% of their revenues come from data. Something has changed. And they are the most valuable companies in the world, by the way. 
So what has changed? There is something that is different about data. And I characterize it as the difference between what I call episodic data and interactive data. Almost 100% of the data of the legacy firms is episodic in nature. Let me give an example. You walk into Barnes & Noble, for example, and you spend two hours in that store and you walk away with one book. What's the data they have? They have data about that one book. You spend two hours in the Amazon platform, you buy nothing. <laughs> What's the data they have? Tons of data about you. That's the difference between episodic and interactive. And what I've been trying to say is that if legacy firms want to really participate in this new world, they have to start thinking about data differently. Episodic data is meant to support your products. Interactive data, if you really want to leverage that, you need to use your products as conduits to get interactive data. And that's a very different way of thinking strategically. And that's what my book is a lot about. Yeah, we'll definitely touch on your book. I was going to ask you, what advice are you giving to people who have, a say, a legacy organization? How can they go about turning that data into a parallel product, which I know is something you've mentioned before? So again, our backup, for many years, you know, when we were thinking about competitive strategy for legacy firms, it's not that we had not noticed platforms evolving. Remember when Microsoft first came and, you know, during the internet era. And so we said, okay, you know, Microsoft there, it's a tech firm. You know, we don't have to deal with them. You know, we are different. Because what Microsoft did, we could not do. Today, it's not that. Today, we have sensors. Today, we have IoT. Today, we have AI, which has become so ubiquitous that you literally are leaving money on the table if you are not thinking about how to use them to transform your business models. So let me give an example. We all know about inhalers that we typically use to manage asthma. You probably would know people who have had asthma. I've had occasional asthmatic attacks and you know we use medications. Now, this is not a new product. It's been around for a very, very long time. It's a small little device you put in your mouth, you squeeze the canister, you take the medication. There are two types of these inhalers. One is what you use on regular prescription basis, which is a one puff a day or two puffs twice a day or whatever. And the other is what we call a rescue inhaler, okay, where you get a sudden attack and the physiology in the lungs are different and you know you need some different medication. Now, now you have a smart inhaler. And what does that do? It has a sensor. But the big difference now is that it captures interactive data. Like what? Even if you're not using it, it is streaming data in terms of where is it located. Now, why is location important? You have a sudden attack, you want to know where that inhaler is. Because it is tracking you almost all the time, 24-7, it can remind you to take your medications. Why is that so important? Because it has shown and studies have shown that your compliance improves. Now, there, these are what I call more basic features, but there are far more advanced features which are possible if you really exploit the power of the kind of interactive data that you can get from your smart inhaler. One of the things could be that it can track all kinds of allergens or triggers for your asthmatic attack. It could be pollution, it could be dust, it could be mold, whatever it is. Now imagine when 
this interactive data which is coming pinpointed from your specific inhaler, your specific location, and you can connect it with a whole bunch of external entities to start predicting when are you likely to get an attack, where should you go, where should you not go. These are all huge, huge improvements in what you can do with the medication through data. But now you notice there's a big difference. The regular inhaler uses data, but for things like how many inhalers have I sold? What's the contribution margin? What's the inventory in a particular warehouse? So all to support data. On the other hand here, now the smart inhaler is using traditional data. It's not that it's not, but in addition, it becomes a conduit for new kinds of data which can expand the business scope of companies. And by the way, now that product is operating as a digital platform if it connects you to third-party entities, just like what Uber does. We have a proof of concept from these digital platforms. And I think that legacy firms should use that understanding. Very good examples there. You mentioned the word digital ecosystems a couple of times, Mohan. I'm wondering... What is your sort of definition of a digital ecosystem and, and then how can companies utilize these to, to sort of harness that data? That's again a very good question. And in fact, interactive data and digital ecosystems go hand in hand and they become the two fundamental pillars of what I describe as the future of competitive strategy and my framework for digital transformation. Okay, so let me answer the question directly first. How do you define a digital ecosystem? I define it as a network of data generators and data recipients. And it is very obvious in the case of an Uber, for example, that drivers and riders are all data generators and recipients. And so are a whole host of different app developers who are part of that platform, which allows Uber to give a variety of different services. Now, legacy firms are not platforms. They have value chains and then they have products. How should we think of digital ecosystems for legacy firms is one of the key contributions of my book, apart from pointing out the difference or the framing of episodic versus interactive data. Now, the way I start thinking about a legacy firm's digital ecosystem is by looking at its fundamental network as it operates today. How does it operate today? It has a value chain and it sells a product. Now, if you think of that value chain, it's a pretty complex network for a whole bunch of companies. If you think of sophisticated companies in terms of the networks, the complex networks they have, think of Boeing or Airbus. You know, there are thousands and thousands of components and suppliers and so many things that are going on, which you could easily call an ecosystem. But when does it become a digital ecosystem? Is when that network gets digitally connected. So when your value chain and the various assets and entities in that value chain get digitally connected. That's the first step for a digital ecosystem for a legacy firm. And I call them production ecosystems. These are the digital ecosystems in which you produce and sell. And by the way, it started somewhere in the 70s with IT systems. And they were very clunky initially. But now with ERP and cloud services, things are getting better. But of course, with IoT and sensors you can enrich that digital ecosystem far, far, far more. Okay, so that's production ecosystems. Now, you've sold your product. In the old world, after you've sold your product, you have no way of tracking what the product is doing. 
I joke about this. If you think of, you know, this McDonald's, the golden arches that are all around, you know, also in the UK, wherever you go, you know, most of these signs have this, the, reads this way that billions and billions of burgers sold. Now, evidently in 1994, they touched 100 billion burgers. And after 1994, they have stopped counting. It doesn't matter, right? They've sold it. Who cares where it has gone? And you'd be surprised of how many companies just lose track of where they have sold their products or what they have done. Now, imagine that these products are now connected. And if you can track how this product is interacting in its environment. For that, I take you concept of what I call complements. All products have complements. Cars have roads and, you know, gas stations and petrol stations or independence. I mean, the complements are those that without them, the product doesn't have any demand, right? If you have a toothbrush, you don't have a toothpaste, there's no demand for a toothbrush. If you have a car, no road, there's no demand. If you have a light bulb and, you know, you don't have wiring or electricity, there's no demand for a light bulb. However, in the legacy world, nobody cared about those. Think of any any bulb, light bulb company would think in its right mind would get it to electricity or wiring. They don't. It didn't make sense. But in this new world, when you are able to get interactive data from products, now you can connect them to a whole bunch of new complements. So the smart inhaler example that I gave, if it is able to connect to entities that track pollution or pollen or mold or whatever, they are now a new world in which a legacy firm can enter into. I call them consumption ecosystems. These are the digital ecosystems in which the product is consumed. So if you think of what are digital ecosystems for legacy firms, it's a combination of production and consumption ecosystems. Possible only, at least the consumption ecosystem is possible only with interactive data. You cannot do it with episodic data. The production ecosystem, maybe you can do some things with your episodic data and all those kinds of things, which you have been doing with IT services, but they can only take you this far. They can give operational efficiencies. But if you use interactive data from products within your production ecosystems, you can push them to give new data-driven services. So for example, the inhaler example, which is if I'm able to give you a service of reminding you when to take a dose, I could monetize that. I could say for $5 a month of subscription, I can give you that service. Now, that's a data-driven service, which is coming from the production ecosystems. But if I say that if I can predict an attack depending on where you are, there I require third-party entities to complement my inhaler sensor data. Then I'm getting into the consumption ecosystems. So legacy firms have a slew of opportunities to use data differently and the options that they have is what I kind of categorize in my book, showing which company can do what, which company is leaving money on the table, which company is attracting competitive attacks, and so on, if you're not able to think in these ways. So this is what you're now teaching these leaders that come to you for, for the advice. Who are the best people to manage, create, utilize these digital ecosystems within the business are these are these new key hires are they new job titles are they perhaps some um, technology leaders who need to be reskilled sorry lots of questions there no 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 and they're all connected so 
if you think of production ecosystems, legacy firms already have started doing a lot in that, right? So like I said, the IT systems were a base, but now, you know, you see, they typically call it industry 4.0, though it's not completely accurate. Industry 4.0 is the whole nine yards, which is including the consumption ecosystem. So most legacy firms do not see their ecosystems in that way. I mean, they think of, and there are reasons for that. You know, they're used to the risk-reward trade-offs with investments in IT technology. So if I'm adding AI to it, or if I'm adding some sensors to it, I kind of understand the logic. But to get into consumption ecosystems is a very different kind of mindset. It's scary for many companies, right? They don't understand that. But Coming to your question in terms of the skills required and the inputs required, when it comes to production ecosystems, improving your operational efficiencies through modern digital technologies in your production ecosystem is something that is almost like a linear progression about what legacy firms are doing. A lot of it is with similar kind of talent, except that they might get some people with AI backgrounds and new coding backgrounds and so on and so forth. But, you know, an example like a lights out factory, as we call it, you know, which is that for weeks, you know, a factory can run without any intervention where different assets talk to one another. And these things are happening, by the way. But that's like a kind of high-end example of operational efficiencies through modern digital technologies. But if you want to drive data-driven services from your production ecosystems, which is many of the companies, what they're doing today is to give what we call predictive maintenance services. So a lot of elevator companies are doing that. A lot of construction equipment companies are doing that. A lot of you know, jet engines are doing that. Locomotives are doing that. Where the advantage is that if you're able to track every single locomotive or every single construction equipment asset, then you can monitor and predict when a particular component will fail and give a service out of it, which is to say that, look here, you know, if you have a downtime, you'll lose so much. I will anticipate when it has to come. And also, if you do regular maintenance, you are, again, leaving money on the table because you could have used the machine now, but you're taking it out, out of service and just losing money here. I'll tell you the optimal time to replace a component and reduce your downtime. Now, I can monetize it. But however, it requires very different skills because now you are getting into a higher echelon of digital transformation because it requires thinking of your business process very differently. For starters, your service people have to have different mindsets. They are used to saying, okay, you know, I'm going once in, once in three months servicing it now to kind of track and, and figure out. So that requires changes. Even more difficult is to sell a data-driven service. You know, the simple thing is so you buy a razor and the razor claims it has five blades. You can see the five blades, right? You say, yeah, five blades. And the number of blades, interestingly, don't change depending on how many people use it, right? They remain the same. Not true with data-driven services. My ability to predict an attack that you would have through asthma is a function of how many people are giving me data. That is... Unless I have a threshold of people who buy my smart inhaler, and unless I have a threshold of people from outside entities giving me data that allows me to track these allergens, there is no data-driven service. Yet, I have the challenge of wanting to sell it. So it requires far more sophisticated marketing techniques and selling techniques 
So there's a big difference. And of course, if you get into the platforms, that's a very different deal. So in my frameworks, I talk about four tiers of digital transformation. The first two are about efficiency improvement. The third is about data-driven services from production ecosystems. And the fourth is data-driven services from platforms. They are escalating difficulties. Not all companies can do all four, but all companies must think of the opportunities that are there ahead of them and make sure that they are not missing them. Yeah. These C-suite leaders that come to you for advice to learn about digital transformation, is it the CEOs or is there a sort of mix? You know, who, Who's most focused? It's a combination. My experience has been that if I do a session with, say, you know, the senior management, like heads of divisions, VPs, and all that, then the request invariably is that we want to do it for two more levels. One is, of course, with the real top, including the CEO. Then a broader base of people across the corporation. And the main reason is that you want to have a common language about data and digital ecosystems and digital transformation. Today, unfortunately, the problem is that digital transformation is such a, what I would I say, abused term, you know, where any digital initiative, you do some uh, cloud services, digital transformation. You do some, you know, put some AI somewhere in your business, digital transformation. You put some chat box somewhere, digital transformation. So, we, you never do that with products, right? I mean, you never do that. We don't go half-hearted, you know, in terms of saying that, you know, I'll just take one feature of this product now and maybe the other. You have a clean understanding of what the full potential of a project trajectory is going to be before you invest. Unfortunately, you don't do that here. And the amount of investments that are going into the so-called digital transformation initiatives are huge. All this is happening without a clean strategic vision. And that, I think, is a problem. And that is what I try to communicate with people and try to bring the urgency. Yeah. So, last question around digital transformation. Are there topics or themes that are not getting enough attention, in your opinion? I think the big elephant in the room here is privacy, data-driven privacy or data privacy. Now, that's a tricky issue and... You know, it's very difficult to give pinpointed solutions to them. There are two issues that I would like to raise here. First is that there's always a trade-off between convenience and privacy. So a quick example, when we, you know, landed in Geneva, when we were moving from Boston out here, you know, we came, normally we don't, we carry just, uh, you know, cabin baggage and things. I don't, I hate to check in baggage, but, you know, we're coming, making a big trip. And of course, we land in Geneva, one of the suitcases have not come. And we, we have gone through that experience, almost all of us, that you wait for about an hour and a half till you know that your luggage is not there. Then they'll ask you to go roam around the whole airport facilities. To, and then you go and stand in line. It took about five hours before they, we went home. All they said was that we will ship the thing to you. Now, think about the pain, right, in this. And what if there was a feature, say, with $5, you pay $5. And as you walk out of your plane, you'll get a text message saying that, hey, your bag was not loaded. I'm sorry. But, you know, just text us the address you want to send it to and, you know, and you go, you go home. Now, that's convenience. Now, does it mean that you're losing privacy? Yes. You're telling somebody that, hey, you are traveling to Geneva or whatever that is. Now, 
it's true with any kind of segmentation, isn't it? That there may be lots of customers like me who would say, I would rather get that convenience. I don't care. So this is what legacy firms have to kind of figure out of how. That is one. Second thing is about ethical behavior. I believe that legacy firms have an advantage, particularly when they have good, trustworthy brands, that they can leverage the strength of their brand by being ethical and telling people that we'll give you these services and we won't abuse your trust. Unfortunately, a lot of these digital platforms, they operated in a time when nobody understood these things and they really abused their power. And it's a pity that that is now coming on to legacy firms and, you know, that they have to kind of go on an uphill battle to kind of show. But there are ways of framing. They're not very different from, you know, looking at early adopters and stuff like that in terms of trying to get this across. But this is something very important. But of course, at the bottom of it, there is no substitute for ethical behavior. Don't do non-ethical things with data, even if you can get away with it, because in the long run, it'll come back to bite you. Great. Thank you for sharing that. I am just looking, and we are slowly running out of time. I feel like we could continue the discussion for very long. There's clearly lots to speak about. Thank you so much, uh, Mohan. It's been really lovely meeting you, hearing your story, and thank you for, so much for sharing your insights uh, with us. We'll, of course, add links and stuff to your book, and hopefully a few more people will read it. But Thank you again for your time. Oh, thank you, Craig. Thank you for inviting me. And I thought it was a lovely conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thank you. I learned so much. I'm very lucky and I, I can just ask silly questions and it's just great because, you know, I'm just absorbing all this information. I'm going to be a, a transformation expert, I think, at some point. Not right now. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> but thank you, Ryan. Yeah. Bye-bye.